I'm angry at you for not being more like me. So that was a small poem from the book Bound to a Wings of a Butterfly. Some good news on the book. Since its release, it sold many copies, uh, enough to earn itself the number one new release for poetry in Australia and Oceania on Amazon, which I'm super stoked about. And it's getting a bunch of reviews and feedback, which is blowing my mind. So if you haven't got a copy already, um, I'll chuck a link down below. It's out as a paperback, ebook, audio, and hardcover, which I've, once again, never had sold before. But um, yeah, people seem to be liking the hardcover, so enjoy. Anyway, on to today's uh, discussion. You might hear a little bit of a croakiness in my voice. That is because I'm on the back end of having COVID. Um, For those playing at home, COVID sucks. It feels like uh, it's every cold and flu symptom cycling uh, throughout each day. So one day it was like a headache and muscle pain. The next day it was like sort of like a chesty cough with phlegm. The day after it was a um, bellyache. Um, but it sort of keeps cycling and I made a little joke to my brother being like, you know, maybe it was made in a lab because it's just cycling through all of the conditions day after day. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, not getting political, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it hit quite hard and now hopefully it's on the mend, but please excuse the voice. But when something comes to me, I want to record. So here we are. Anyway, I had this this thought, this idea that humans are generally dissatisfied, right? We, we have moments of happiness, but a lot of our life is lived in dissatisfaction. We can tie this back to the Buddhist teachings on, you know, the end of suffering, the first noble truth. There is suffering. There is dukkha. It's like discomfort. It's, it's annoyance. It's not being settled. Something's not quite right. If we look at it from an evolutionary perspective, if we were to be okay and comfortable and happy, we would stop trying. We would stop uh, innovating. We would stop taking steps to better ourselves. And thus, perhaps, we wouldn't have been able to win the, um, the, the proverbial species race and thus come to dominate the world. That's not an ethical or moral statement. It's sort of what happened. You know, we 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 won in the sense that the path that evolution took gave us the skills and the tools to establish ourselves as we had. But what it also did was give us a general feeling of dissatisfaction. Because no matter what we've got, we're pushed internally, innately, intuitively to want more. Do not be happy. And that's sort of why I suggested the the poem at the start there. I'm angry at you for not being more like me. A simple statement, but that poem has impacted a lot of people. Because how often are you annoyed by someone? Angry by someone? Pissed off? But if you take that step back, you realize you're upset because they're not doing or thinking or speaking or acting in a way that you would. 
And that's disturbing. It's annoying. It's grating. There's something there. The real topic that I wanted to get into was related to both of these things, this general dissatisfaction, this feeling of disconnect. I've been sort of circling this odd concept of disconnect for ages and sort of relating it to technology and social media. But I feel like it's more, I feel like I've uncovered something today that sort of maybe it's a bit more central to the human condition, more central to our storytelling. There's a book, um by Joseph Campbell called The Hero of a Thousand Faces, with a thousand faces. Based on this, it, it sort of created this 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 hero myth, this idea that all of our stories are the same, that you could look at every story that's ever been told and sort of derive it into its component parts, and they all sort of are the same. It's sort of suggesting that the stories that humans latch onto have similar traits. The hero... They're a bit naive, they leave a place, they face some challenges, they learn, they overcome an obstacle, they beat the darkness, then they come back changed. And that change sticks with them, and thus they may no longer fit into the society in the way that they used to. That general structure applies to a whole variety of different stories. And it seems to be that you can look at most of the stories in Hollywood, most of books, most of the fables, most of the things that we've told ourselves over the centuries, the religious stories, everything. And it sort of fits a rough structure. Now, that's not the only theory of storytelling, but a lot of a lot of storytelling theories will sort of break stories into that one sort of hero myth or a collection of different types of stories, but they're sort of archetypes, you know, uh, stereotypes, so to speak. So if it's one or if it's five or if it's seven or whatever the theory that you go for, it suggests that all stories are very similar. And I mean, if you've watched a bunch of movies over your lifetime or read a bunch of books, you very quickly get to the idea of knowing the three-act structure. You know, you're watching a show and it's like, oh yeah, here's where the hero faces some trouble. Oh yeah, here's where the hero does something to sort of get more power. Okay, now the, the villain's destroyed. Oh, they come back for a little bit of a second wind and now they're finally gone. And now... There's that last little bit of the show where the hero's coming back and things are a bit different and sort of wrapping things up. You know, we get an idea for what stories generally look like. So hold that in mind. What I want to suggest is that stories are so prolific in our life that we are comparing our actual lives to story moments. And I'm going to tie it into technology. And I'm not going to go down the same path of ranting that I have in the past, but I'll touch upon it. I've recently um, gotten onto TikTok to share my spoken word poetry. So I'll put a link down below so you can check it out. And I've been avoiding TikTok for ages. And the reason I've avoided it is because it's, it feels like social media on steroids and you can watch it and sort of get engrossed because it's these 10 to 60 second videos of Perfection. And what I mean by perfection is like life synthesized or distilled into a moment. So like, do you know if you watch a sex scene on a movie and it's stylized and it's graphic and it's beautiful and it's perfect? Well, how easy would it be to compare your real life sex to the movies? And by the movies, that could be a book, could be anything. You, you would find that what you have experienced whilst 
similar in in content and maybe even in in sort of like direction and style can't quite match that movie perfection you can apply this same thing to sporting accomplishments to you know that moment that someone comes home from the airport and people are there waiting for you or you know the moment your child's born or pick any pivotal moment or even mundane moment and the stories and the media we've been told has projected that moment perfectly and with many iterations of that moment. Once again, you go to TikTok and it's happening over and over again, time and time again. You know, people are dancing and moving perfectly. It's a seduction. There's comedy on a level that can't happen in real life. There's interactions that can't happen on a level that can happen in real life. So what ends up happening is, is that we see these stories in movies, in books, in social media, on TikTok, on, you know, from, from gossip, right? Even we, we share, we share stories and we touch them up a bit, right? When we're telling the story to make it a little bit more sexy, a little bit more exciting. But where does that leave us? It leaves us individually stuck inside our head with our own opinions and our own perspectives, never quite matching that moment. And, and perhaps this is a, a, a bug or a feature of my brain coming from a trauma slash neglect full childhood, a dissociative uh, mental condition. Because I distinctly remember multiple times in my life where quote unquote significant events are happening. So my father's passing or in hospital or a breakup with a partner or you know, like I'm standing up to my boss at work, handing him my resignation. These sort of like, you know, pivotal moments, a fight. And part of my brain's there comparing what I'm actually experiencing versus what I'm expecting to be experiencing based on the movies, based on stories, based on expectations of something that isn't real. And being simultaneously let down because my life doesn't have that same vividness that I've experienced in stories. So perhaps, perhaps I'm, you know, like I said, perhaps it's a measure of my dissociation and maybe you're listening to this going, mm, I can't relate. I don't know. I, I know that when I see other people, when I see something emotional, I'm often quite detached from it. I see people around me upset and crying and impacted. And part of me is like thinking, hmm, this isn't real. And then I'm comparing that feeling to what I've seen from fiction, movies, etc. And the emotionality portrayed on the screen, for example, and going, ah, but that would be real. So when I feel that, then this experience will be real. And it's left me quite dissociated. It's left me quite separate. I can't help but feel that a lot of my suffering is an inability to rectify the difference between real life and fiction in my mind. I don't know. There's something there. And don't get me wrong, it, it feels quite crazy just even speaking this out loud because you can interpret this as like, doesn't he feel things are real? Well, like, yeah, I know things are real. But 
I have to fight for that feeling. Dissociative mental disorders are quite tricky because it's like this balancing act between uh, a tightrope of, of, of staying sane, staying sober, staying present in the moment. Mindfulness meditation is key for me because it's literally training me to focus on the moment, focus on the now. Because what what's more important than right now? What exists other than now? And the things that I'm feeling. Because it's not like I dissociate forever. Because eventually those emotions bubble up, build up, and become super overwhelming that I can't control them. And... In the past, this has led to psychologists suggesting a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder because it displays quite similarly to the external perspective. Varied emotions, emotionality, dissociativeness, all of these sort of things. But the the, the, the trauma and neglect also explain those same behaviors because if you're dissociating, you're blocked off from the emotions and you're putting them aside, but then they build up and they become too strong then they express themselves and because you haven't been practiced or experienced feeling what you're feeling becomes overwhelming and thus you act irrationally. Thus you act with extremeness in a way that you wouldn't normally act or shouldn't normally act. So there's a lot of crossover there. There's also an interesting thing that happens when I smoke weed, marijuana. You, I see it happening when I'm smoking with other people particularly. There's, there's a distinct group of people that when they smoke, they get giddy. They get crazy. They get sort of like movie stoned, <laughs> which I always find funny because it never happens to me. What happens to me is, is that I get very introspective. I see what I'm feeling. <laughs> and it's like I've spoken to people about this before, basically being like, if I want to know how I'm feeling, sometimes I'll get high and meditate on it because that's the only way that I can really sort of cut through the layers of dissociation and sort of see what I'm actually feeling. <sighs> Which is disturbing. It's disturbing on multiple levels because it's like, why should I need to use a drug to think, to see, to know what I'm feeling? And sensibly, I don't. If I'm, if I'm dedicated enough to my meditation practice, I can, but it's like a shortcut. It sort of shows me what I want, what I don't want, like that. Um, but it's a tool. It's a tool to be used. Problem is, is that it's also um, quite pleasant. Pleasant feelings, you know. Music feels better. Food feels better. Exercise feels better. Sex feels better. Life feels better. The sun feels better, right? Hugging my kids feels better. Everything feels better when you're stoned. So it's uh, appealing, enticing, addictive. The other issue is that... Uh, it was one of the main drugs my father used. Now, he used many a drug, but he was always stoned. Always. I remember I remember being in his house one day, and from the moment he woke up, he would hit the bong, have a coffee. 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 All day. All day. Maybe, maybe every hour on the hour. I don't know. It was at least 10 times in a day. At least going hard. And it's, it's, um, I find it disturbing on multiple levels that I enjoy it myself too. So yes, I, I guess part of this 
sort of disconnect feeling and this sort of looking at the, the, the stories that I was talking about earlier relates to this feeling of a lack of a shared experience. You know, we didn't evolve to live in mega societies with mass communication. Simply put, we didn't. You know, small tribes, 50 to 1,000 people, right? Possibly where you could know everyone. And everyone had a defined role and a defined place and a defined experience. So that we all knew what was happening. If something happened, it would have been a shared experience. So let's say, yeah, there was there was an, an animal attack that killed someone. Everyone in that village would have been impacted. They would all know the victim. They would all have to prepare defenses. If if there was a tribal war, they would all be impacted. It's, it's a shared experience. If there's a drought or a hurricane or an earthquake, everyone has that same shared experience. They all share the same language. They all share the same upbringing, the same myths, the same beliefs. I feel like that's where we were more, more so uh, geared towards, right? And I feel like that's part of our pull or our desire to consume media, you know, with the war in Russia and the the, the slap, <laughs> the Will Smith slap. It's like, oh, look, we've got this shared experience of something, you know. We can all talk on this shared experience of something. Maybe that's the 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 the, the reason for the proliferation of the news cycle. I don't know. What I do know is that I can go to my neighbour and they're living a completely different life, a different world almost to the world I'm living in. Because the way that our societies are structured, you know, like other than living next door, they don't really have to have anything involved with anything to do with anything in my life. It's like they're on a different planet. They just come home to rest next to me. So it's like we're not really connected in that sense. And that must cause some sort of issues. You know what causes some issues with me? Because, I don't know, it just, this is, once again, this level of disconnect. <sighs> I've had, I have memory, many memories of times where I've thought, okay, but this isn't the real event because I was waiting for what I'd been exposed to on TV to show me. It's interesting, like, I have a weird relationship with TV. Growing up, I, particularly at my father's, but also at my mother's, I was watching a lot, a lot of TV. Just sitting in front of the TV for hours. I wrote about it, one experience of this in my first book, Under the Influence, watching Disney's um, animated cartoon Robin Hood. I was at my father at my father's for the weekend or whatever, and he took us to a friend's house that he always took us to, and we always watched the same DVD because it's the only DVD that they had. And it was me and my brother, quite young at the time, and their two kids who were quite young, maybe three, maybe two, three, I don't know, still in diapers. The house was a mess. The kids were a mess. Disgusting. But they would put the TV on, and it would be that same show again and again and again and again. I might have watched it maybe a hundred times. What does what does that do to someone's psyche, right? And and habits, you know, because that's not the only show that I watched over and over again. It's like I've got like an innate, inbuilt, um, seasons one to sort of twelve Simpsons quote repertoire. It's like I watched those over and over and over again as well. 
and endless, endless other examples. So it's like, take The Simpsons for example. It's clearly a dysfunctional family. Homer is an, an abusive alcoholic. Marge is an abuse victim, a neurotic abuse victim who's, you know, staying with her abuser because despite knowing that she very much could do better. The kids obviously have their own issues. Bart's, what, ADHD, ASD, who knows? He's also the, 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 the victim of abuse from his father. Lisa's a struggling, uh, gifted child who can't be appreciated for her own, um, <laughs> for what she can do, right? And on and on. Obviously, that's like the nature of the show. Fair enough. But if it's, if you're exposed to that as a young kid, even if you're told this is this isn't a real example of a family, this isn't how families should interact. You're still watching those dynamics day in and day out. What do those dynamics do to a developing brain? How do they impact that that brain, particularly when you see it again and again and again? Like a monoculture. It's not like it's not like you're having a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and seeing diversity. It's like, oh no, no, no. It's like this is what you're having. It's like eating the one food over and over again. It might sustain you, but it won't let you thrive. I remember watching a lot of Daria as a kid. You know Daria? The 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 depressed teen who lived in a uh, <laughs> lived in a in a um padded room. <laughs> I remember feeling like, yeah, Dari is my spirit animal. I don't know why, I just connected to this character, this, like, ugh, at life, sick, sad world, you know? <sighs> but where do we share this experience? What shared experiences can we have? How can we connect? How can we actually experience it? Because, you know, having COVID is interesting. This is a, this is a shared experience, right? How many people have had or will have COVID? Probably a lot. And my experience with it has been similar to a lot of people's experiences with it. And it's made it real. It's sort of like until it happened to me, it didn't feel real. I mean, I knew it was real. I was getting impacted by the isolations and lockdowns and all that sort of stuff. But mm, this uh, mm, this sucks. So, so maybe we can all come together over our dislike of being sick through COVID. I don't know. Once again, very rambly. I don't know. Like, are these rambly episodes any good? What's the point of this podcast? What's the point of anything? COVID's got me a existential crisis in. I don't know, maybe maybe it's me attempting to come to understand my place in the world. My place as an adult, as a father, as a autonomous being, as someone who can start taking steps to take control of their life. I don't know. I'm growing into this career that I'm developing for myself. And with this new book, Bound to the Wings of a Butterfly, doing so well, it's becoming more and more apparent that I will be able to make it. I've, you know, in a lot of the stuff I do online, I'm becoming moderately successful with it, which is a shock. One of the things with dissociative disorders is Things don't feel quite real and consequences don't feel quite real in the sense of it feels like I can do things and just people won't care. People won't respond. My words and actions won't matter. 
Now, obviously and logically, I know that not to be true. You know, if I was to commit a crime, I would get arrested and punished. So I don't. But the on the other side of things, it also feels like if I if I was to do something positive, if I was to take steps to try to become someone, you know, to follow my dreams, that wouldn't work either. So it's sort of shocking to see it happening. It's pleasant, but it just, it's just a general feeling of unreality over, over the top of my mind that I'm constantly having to just remind myself like, no, this is real. Life is real. I wrote a poem called Fever Dream. And in that poem, I'm basically explaining that, you know, the fever dreams that you get when you, when you get sick, <laughs> right? Um, when you, when you get sick, when you are unwell, you, you dream and these dreams become quite vivid. One of the things you can do with vivid dreams is lucid dream. But for someone with dissociative disorders, if everything feels unreal, how can you check into reality as easily? It's quite hard for me to lucid dream, despite me openly acknowledging the unreality of my dreams because it's like that's how life feels normally the more i meditate the more i consider it the better i'm getting at lucid dreaming but it's sort of like if life already feels a bit unreal why would i recognize it in a dream so this poem sort of emphasizes that so i'll read it to you now this isn't in the book i just wrote it to couple of days ago whilst waking from a fever dream from COVID because the dreams are crazy. Anyway, fever dreams liberate the mind. Boundless and edgeless thoughts flow, skipping between ponds of reality. No No longer constrained by rationality, consciousness drifts. Well, what once thirsted for stability now wants for nothing but the pretty colours that seem to hold all meaning within this play of consciousness. I can feel myself losing myself and just drifting. And then I wonder, should I not just drift in normal waking life? Would that, would that be a way to end the general feelings of suffering that I'm feeling? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I'll put the links down below. You can check me out. Check out the book. Hit me up on TikTok. All that good stuff. Anyway, cheers. 